0: Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible, as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in.
1: Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. On day 116 of the coronavirus crisis, as Georgia is now just hours away from reopening its economy.
0: Potentially bad news for Gilead's drug Remdesivir.
2: New questions about the drug that many hoped would get us out of this mess. Plus, a safe and phased reopening of our economy does not mean that we are letting down our guard. It's now just a matter of hours before Georgia tests the waters and goes back to work. Also tonight, they
3: are victimizing our community and my citizens, and that that's just absolutely offensive to me.
2: A new threat to the nation's meat supply. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner.
1: Good to have you with us once again this evening. Let's take you right to the boards and show you where futures look at this hour. We are negative across the board, Dow with a triple-digit loss right now. Interesting session today on Wall Street. Today, really, one company changed the tone in the session, and it was Gilead. Stocks gave up gains after a negative report on Gilead's drug designed to fight the virus. We'll have more on that in just a moment. The Dow rising 39 points. It had been up more than 400 at the highs today. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq ending slightly lower. Well, in a matter of hours, Georgia is set to reopen its economy. Some business owners say it's too risky. Others say they have no choice. One of those is the owner of Awakened Salon and Spa in Warner Robins, Georgia, Cade Daffin, with us live this evening. Cade, thanks for being here. It's good to see you. Thank you, Scott. How are you? Well, I'm good, thank you. I hope you are as well. What will you be doing tomorrow? Well, we kind of took this
4: opportunity to reinvent what we'll do in this new normal. So I'm actually not allowing our team members to work um, for the next couple of days. I'm going to be working alone and I'm going to be establishing what the new guidelines look like, what um, social distancing looks like while providing services. Um, It's hard to socially distance when you're a hairstylist. So uh, that's what we'll be doing first. And within the next couple
1: of weeks, we'll allow our team to come back in. You're saying you'll actually have appointments for tomorrow? You will have people in your salons tomorrow? I do. I'm doing uh, mostly men's cuts,
4: and I chose to do men's cuts because they are quicker. Um, I'm doing one every hour, so I'm offering about 30 minutes in between each guest. Um, I'm only doing seven. The reason I'm doing those is because I think it's going to allow us to decide what um, – what it'll look like when we come back to work. Um, it's important for us to be there. Why are you willing to take this risk? Well, you know, it's not that I'm willing to take the risk. It's a risk that we have to take. I'm a small business owner. Um, I, we didn't receive a whole bunch of support from a lot of people. Um, we didn't receive any grants or any loans. Um, we were fortunate in my business that we did get unemployment. However, um, we, have,
1: we still have bills to pay, and we have to get back in. Totally. Yeah. We wish you well. I thank you very much. We'll check back in with you and see how it all goes. Dr. Ted Ross is the director of the Center for Vaccines and Immunology at the University of Georgia. He is with us now. Doctor, it's good to have you with us. Do you think it's wise for businesses like salons to be opening tomorrow in your state?
5: No, I actually don't think it's wise at all that the state is opening up uh, any of these non-essential businesses Currently, the number of cases in Georgia has uh, been consistent for the last two weeks. We've had somewhere between 700 and 1,000 new cases per day. It has yet to wane. And this just doesn't seem to be the time for us to start opening up our, our doors and put more people at risk.
1: How much time do you think businesses should wait? You just heard from our prior guest who's faced with a conundrum. He knows he's taking somewhat of a risk, but he's a small business owner. He needs to open and get back to business. What do you tell him?
5: I understand that we're all suffering. We're all hurting uh, financially, and we really all want to get back to work. But if we open our doors too quickly and we start to see people get infected again and we see a rise or a surge, we're really just putting ourselves right back at the beginning and having to go back to the shutdown or a lockdown uh, situation.
1: When do you think the right time would
5: be? When we see the number of cases decline significantly, and these are the known cases, right now we know there's a lot of people who are not being tested and are not currently, uh, we don't know if they're positive, but we need to have consistent testing, see a decline in the number of confirmed cases, and also have contact tracing where we can follow up with individuals who have been exposed or potentially exposed to people that we know are positive. And that may still take several weeks, if not a month before we get to that point.
1: Dr. Ross, we appreciate so much your time this evening. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Now to another doctor, Dr. Gottlieb. He is the former FDA commissioner, a current CNBC contributor. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to see you again. Thanks. So here we are. We're on the eve of Georgia opening, and you tweeted out just a short time ago that you have a worsening epidemic now in the state of Georgia, and it may not peak until the first week in May.
6: Right. If you look at the recent update to the IHME model, the closely watched model that's modeling um, the peak epidemics across the country and states and looking at healthcare resource utilization, they now pushed out their projections on how severe the Georgia epidemic is going to be and also when it's going to peak. They're projecting that it would peak sometime in late April into early May. If you look at the confidence intervals around when when they show that epidemic peaking in terms of the number of deaths being reported on a daily basis, a number of hospitalizations. So Georgia actually has worsened. I mean, the data is showing that the epidemic's getting stretched out in that state already. There's a couple of other states that look worse in the latest update on the model. I think it's consistent with the data we're seeing, that model right now. And the model is probably getting more accurate in terms of gauging the current U.S. experience. And so I would put some stock in, in these projections that it's going to take a little longer for Georgia to, to peak and come down from their epidemic. Let's talk about a neighboring state, that being Florida. The
1: senator there, Rick Scott, tonight, saying that they're nowhere near close on having enough testing. Dr. Fauci apparently telling Time magazine the same. The president disagreeing with Dr. Fauci tonight, Dr. Gottlieb at the news conference, saying that he is disagreeing with that, that he thinks we're doing great.
6: What's the truth? Where are we on testing? Well, look, we're doing a good job building capacity, but we got a late start. And so, because we only started really building this capacity in February, we're not where we need to be. Uh, We will be there, I think, in a couple of months. We're going to have a lot of testing capacity heading into the fall. We'll probably have the ability to test 3 million people a week, which I think is pretty robust capacity. But right now, as we reopen the country, our current ability is to test about a million people a week, which sounds like a lot, but spread over a diverse nation, a big nation. And in the throes of a a declining epidemic when you're still doing a lot of testing around the hospital, it doesn't leave a lot of excess capacity to be testing in the community. What you want is the capacity to test anyone who presents with any kind of signs or symptoms of coronavirus or anyone who might have been in contact with someone with coronavirus. You want to be testing very aggressively and widely in the community. We're not able to do that right now. If you look nationally at the positivity rate, how many people who get tested are actually positive when they get their test results back? It's about 20 percent. That figure should probably be below five percent. That would be a good indication that we're testing um, broadly enough if we're getting back fewer positive samples. So right now we're still getting back too many positive samples really to give you comfort that we're testing broadly enough. How about this new study, Dr. Gottlieb, that suggests
1: sunlight is effective in killing the virus and killing the virus very quickly. What do we know?
6: Well, they talked about the president's press conference today, and I tweeted out an earlier uh, earlier today a study that uh, was done in China where they looked at clusters. And we've talked about this on the show. They, they looked at clusters of infection where three or more people became infected from a single introduction, a single index case, and found that in only one case, and this was about 130 different cases, in only one case was the infection um, originating from uh... transmission that happened indoors um, outdoors excuse me In the other cases the transmission happened indoors either on subways on mass transit or in the home so what they found was that you were far less likely to transmit the infection to a group of people if if people were clustered outside versus inside and so that's consistent with what we know about this virus ultraviolet light does kill the virus we believe that um, hot humid weather makes droplet transmission less efficient we know that from other viruses So there should be less transmission outside versus inside. And so where that becomes important from a policy standpoint is if you're a governor or mayor, you could start to think about moving certain activities that might take place inside. But now you have the advantage of being able to move them outside because the weather is warming having those activities restart outside rather than indoors. You think of religious services or gym classes, things that would give people a sense of normalcy about their lives that you want to restart, but you don't want to crowd people into indoor settings. You might be able to do those more safely outside and perhaps introduce them a little earlier than you might have otherwise done.
1: Okay, from transmission to the fight against the virus, Dr. Gottlieb, I'm going to ask you to stand by for just a moment. I want to move to the news that did hit the markets today. Our partners at Stat News reporting first today about a World Health Organization a website showing Gilead's remdesivir showed no benefit for coronavirus patients in China. For more, let's bring in CNBC's pharma reporter Meg Terrell and Matthew Herper. He is the senior writer for Stat News. Uh, Matthew, I'm coming to you first. Tell us more about what happened today, uh, what you saw.
7: Well, this is an unusual situation. Um, one of my colleagues saw a. A clinical trial abstract posted on the World Health Organization website that revealed the results of this study this is the first time we've seen data from a randomized controlled study which is the medical gold standard for remdesivir and the the study was clearly negative and actually it looks like it went the wrong it was looks like that m- there was certainly no mortality benefit and there may have even been a detriment um, now Gilead the maker of remdesivir cautions that That they say you shouldn't read too much into this, that there were trends we're not seeing in the data that may have been positive, but it's certainly not encouraging news.
1: Meg, this was one study. And let's be clear, there are several others going on and they're going on in the United States. They seem to be trusted uh, by more people. What can you tell us?
8: Well, we're expecting within the next week to see the first readout of a full trial from Gilead that's going to be in the most severe patients. Now, we have to take those data with a grain of salt as well because they are not the gold standard controlled clinical trials that we'll be looking for and that we'll get to see in late May from the NIH. Uh, So this first one from Gilead uh, will give us some more information. We're then going to see a second one from Gilead in May as well in less severe patients, in moderate patients. Uh, And then we'll see that NIH trial, which really will be the gold standard um, at the end of May. So really, we're going to be waiting for another month probably until we get a really good idea of whether remdesivir really works.
1: Matthew, critical to note here as well, this study apparently in China was stopped early because it had too few patients. What do we make of that?
7: Uh so some people have expressed skepticism because of that, but it does appear that, you know, look at what happened to COVID-19 in China. There's been a dramatic decrease in the number of cases and that makes it a lot harder to enroll a clinical trial. That's probably why the study was stopped early, but it also means that it has less statistical power than uh the researchers who designed the study expected at the beginning. And that uh that could make the results less clear.
1: And Meg, remind us, when should we expect these results from Gilead, from these studies here in the U.S., and in how many days?
8: Well, so May is next Friday, and Gilead has said by the end of the month we're going to see the first trial results. So we're expecting it within the week, Scott.
1: Look forward to it. Meg, thanks so much. Matthew Herper, our thanks to you as well. We bring back in now Dr. Gottlieb. So, Dr. Gottlieb, what do we think about uh, this study today, or at least what
6: uh, is trickling out uh, from China? Well, I don't think it tells us that much. Um, We we believe that the drug, if it is effective, it's probably weakly active. This isn't going to be a home-run drug. I think it could be beneficial in an overall therapeutic approach to the disease heading into the fall. But we never thought that this antiviral was going to have a really robust treatment effect. And we also thought that it was going to work best if introduced early in the course of the disease. So this was an underpowered study that was stopped early because they were unable to continue enrolling the study. And it was in severe patients, the patients that are less likely to have a robust treatment effect. It's unfortunate the way the Chinese handled this study. I'll just say that um, because Gilead went through great lengths to get the drug to China to help them stand up this study. And uh, the Chinese investigators here don't seem to have been forthcoming with that data or provided it in a way that it was constructive for us in terms of our decision making And just learning about this drug. So it's unfortunate the way this unfolded, but I'm not sure we can draw too much um, from this one study. The data that's going to get read out, um, hopefully really soon, is going to be in less severe patients. And so that's going to give us a better indication if the drug can be effective when introduced earlier in the course of disease. You still fairly optimistic about remdesivir? I felt all along looking at the data that's accrued so far that it looks like it's active. Um, it's probably weekly active, but it probably has activity and could potentially provide a therapeutic benefit if used in the right conditions in the right setting. I still think that's probably going to be the case, but we have to wait and see. The studies are going to get read out. This is why we do clinical studies, because a hunch isn't uh, good for decision-making if you're making decisions for a lot of patients. So we have to wait and see the, what these studies say. But there's enough studies underway between the two open-label studies that are underway in a randomized trial that's being conducted by the NIH that we should get a pretty good read on whether this drug is working and just how robust that treatment effect is. Let's move to talk about a couple of other items before we go. New York's
1: governor today said results from serology testing that the state's infection rate was 13.7 percent, but actually 21 percent in New York City. You think those are too high, as some others do?
6: Well, this is also consistent with what we've been saying. We've said on this show that we're diagnosing one in 10 to one in 20 cases probably in this country. So this would suggest that they're diagnosing one in 12 cases in New York. Um, and it would it would imply that there's 1.7 million New Yorkers that have been infected. Um, we've said on the show anywhere from one to two million New Yorkers probably will have this virus by the time the epidemic runs its course. That would put the infection fatality rate right at about one percent because you have 17,000 New Yorkers who've perished tragically from this from this infection from this virus, and you this this sero- uh, prevalence study suggests that there's 1.7 million New Yorkers that have had the infection. So it would put the numbers consistent with the kinds of targets that we've expected. Now, that said, I think it's a little high. We have to understand better what this antibody test was and, and the specificity and reliability of the test, because while I, I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the epidemic, two million New Yorkers have been infected, I'd be surprised if this early in the course of the epidemic, you, you're getting up into those kinds of numbers. And so I, I suspect it's a little high, but it's probably not that high. It's probably not out of the bounds of, of where this is going to end up. Um, you
1: tweeted today as well, by the time New York City confirmed its first case of covid nineteen on March first, as many as ten thousand infections were already silently spreading through the city that 's according to to one analysis. What do we make of that
6: well again, consistent with what we what we 've been learning, which is that this this virus was spreading pretty widely in the United States, and we weren 't detecting it and that gets back to the question of. Um, Why didn't we have diagnostic testing and surveillance testing in place much earlier? Had we had that testing in place earlier... And had we been randomly testing or routinely testing people who are presenting with flu-like symptoms but testing negative for the flu, we probably would have detected these outbreaks sooner and probably would have been in a position to take action sooner that might have mitigated the scope of this epidemic. We didn't have that capability in place. And so 10,000 infections might have been able to accrue in New York before we were able to detect the scope of this epidemic. Talk so often about New
1: York because it has been the nation's hotspot. But can you speak to the people of California tonight? It is the uh, the world's fourth largest uh, economy. How is that state doing?
6: Better than New York. Um, they took mitigation steps earlier and were able to contain their epidemic. And so you've seen them peak um, much sooner and, and they've been coming down their epidemic curve and they never really had the burden on their health care system that was once anticipated. So the state made good decisions, um, probably had less infection overall than New York. But they made good decisions that was able to contain their epidemic at an earlier stage, Let's end on a particularly positive. in San Francisco. Send
1: on a positive note, if we could. Oxford University researchers began testing their potential vaccine on humans. They say it
6: could be ready by the end of the summer or September. What do we know? Well, look, there's a number of vaccines in development globally. Um, Here in the United States, there's probably four different platforms that are being uh, tried in terms of trying to get to a vaccine for coronavirus. I'm pretty confident that we're going to have a vaccine that we're able to produce at scale and put into later stage or larger scale human trials in the fall. And if we do have a vaccine where we have millions of doses available, if we had an outbreak in a major American city, You'd probably test the vaccine in the context of that outbreak, where you might randomize people within a city to receive the vaccine, so you'd use the vaccine to hopefully produce a therapeutic effect in terms of trying to contain an outbreak while you're continuing to study it in the context of a rigorous protocol to determine whether it's safe and effective. So if you think about the best way to deploy a vaccine, it's in the context of an epidemic. And I think we're going to have enough doses of of promising vaccines that have cleared preliminary safety trials and demonstrated preliminary safety um, to put them into testing in the setting of an outbreak if we have outbreaks in American cities this fall, which I think it's inevitable that we'll have some outbreaks going into the fall and the winter. Perhaps better prepared to deal with that. Dr. Gottlieb, as always, thank you. Thanks a lot. All right. That's
1: Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us tonight. Been a month since the market hit its low point. We're talking about that move next when this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, comes back.
2: Ahead tonight, a top executive from one of this country's biggest food producers on a wave of shutdowns. How bad will this get? And what's the impact on our food supply? Plus,
9: projects we'd already started setting up, producers just pulled the plug.
2: One oil man's pain. He's far from alone. His story in his own words. Next. Before the break, images from around the country on the 116th day of the coronavirus crisis. Healthy Returns. CNBC's virtual summit is May 12th. For more information and to register, go to CNBCevents.com healthyreturns Healthy Returns. Welcome back as we mark a milestone. Believe it or not, today marks one
1: month since stocks hit their low. Since March 23rd, the Nasdaq is up 23.5%, 22.6% for the Dow S&P, up 21.3%. For more on what is next, let's bring in Mike Santoli. Mike, good to see you. Hey, Scott. So is it just as uh, easy? It's
10: also just over two months. I was going to say just over two months from the high, too. So just as <laughs> yeah. an idea of how compressed this drop and uh, rally has been.
1: Well, remember, we went from the, the highs to the lows in, in, in record speed. Is it too easy to say that yeah. we, we did this comeback because of the Federal Reserve coming to the rescue?
10: I think the Federal Reserve is a prerequisite for having had this comeback. So it's a tremendous element of it. And I think mostly by, uh, at least in investors' perception, taking away that proverbial worst-case scenario, of a very disorderly uh, kind of seizing up of the financial markets, credit spiral uh, to the downside and all the rest of it. So I don't think it's just that, though. Uh, I do think a a down 35% move in a month is going to create its own kind of slingshot effect on some level. Um, uh, And I do think that the Fed and uh, and the Treasury speeded their response has been notable. And it probably accounts for the fact that this rally off the low has overachieved your typical rally off of a big decline like that. Right, We've gained back just about half, a little more than half of the total losses. And and that kind of leaves us in a spot of saying the market really doesn't owe you much in the short term. Uh, But on the other hand, the stronger the initial rebound, it seems to be usually the less of the odds that you're going to go down and revisit the lows or make new lows. So that's the that's the spot we find ourselves
1: in. Big question is whether we deserve to be here. Right. That's what people are asking themselves. How can the market be where it is when Main Street is where it is?
10: It's a completely intuitive, legitimate question. Um, I don't know that you would say the market deserves to be at 2,800 on the S&P 500, although I would point out we first got to this level over two years ago. So it's not as if uh, you know, we're kind of riding right up by the highs. I would point out, too, that within the market, uh, the kinds of stocks that have gotten us back up to these levels are not really the ones that would benefit from a super strong economy. It's not um, the auto stocks and the durable goods stocks and financials even. It's really the big old growth stocks that we got tired of talking about toward the highs. And that suggests it's actually kind of a defensive skew to the, to the leadership of this market, which at least helps explain why we're here, though it doesn't really say if this level outright is justified, because it's not as if the market looks cheap in aggregate at all, uh, never mind the fact that we have no idea what earnings are going to be this year.
1: Sure. You're talking about the so-called FANG stocks in, uh, in, in many respects. If anything, as we look forward, Mike, yes. it means that those stocks can't falter at all, right? Because if you do have a pullback in those names, as top-heavy as the rebound has been, you'll have an overall problem with the market.
10: Sure. I mean, as an index investor, you're very reliant right now on those stocks. Now, on the other hand, I do think if the market really does get a clearer view about you know, a peak in job losses and uh, rehiring and a reacceleration of business activity whenever that's going to be in a few months or so. Uh, I do think you can see a rotation within the market to where all the stuff that is not participating right now certainly has a rebound and it offsets uh, arguably some losses in those growth stocks. So, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily the, uh, the broadest, most stable uh, condition for, uh, for a, a rally, but, but it is the one that, uh, that kind of got us here both to the highs and has uh, has led this recovery.
1: Appreciate you breaking away from the dinner table to be with us. We'll see you throughout the day tomorrow. That's (laughs) Mike Santoli joining us on The Markets. The oil industry in this country was first hit by a feud between Russia and OPEC. Then it was clobbered by the global pandemic that crushed demand for fuel. Here's the co-founder of a fracking support company, Colorado-based Elevate Energy Services, in his own words.
9: 50 to 60% of our work just evaporated overnight. Uh, Things that we literally had scheduled to start that week, projects we'd already started setting up, uh, producers just pulled the plug. We set up a temporary infrastructure from a water source and transport that fresh water to the location where the fracturing is taking place. Russia and OPEC feuding over uh, market share caused the price to, to really start crashing. Right on the heels of that is the market is trying to adjust itself to that. And our new reality, we have the COVID-19 really taking off and demand just evaporates. And the jobs that are currently still running, they all have an expiration date when that project ends. And there's nothing on the schedule coming up after that. What keeps me up at night is the thought of not just my family, but really every everyone that works for me, for their families, what they're lives look like when, when they don't have a job to go to anymore. When the unemployment runs out, I don't know what life looks like in their family. And that, that's what keeps me up.
1: Tough times indeed. That was Craig Horn. He is the co-founder of Elevate Energy Services, in his own words. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back.
2: Next tonight, one top executive that's had to make major changes to how his company operates as workers hit by the virus, stay home. This impacts you too. It's your food supply. Plus, the man many call the philosopher of our time on how the world will be forever changed by this virus. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, will be right back.
0: What's on the horizon for financial markets? CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC business news updates wherever you get your podcasts.
8: Testing is beginning today for more than 2,200 workers at a Tyson food plant.
2: New concern over the food supply. After a major move by one top producer.
3: Gilead's potential coronavirus treatment, remdesivir, flopped in a trial in China.
2: Plus, a new report cast doubt over a drug many hoped would beat the virus. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Good to have you back with us.
1: Let's bring you tonight's headlines on the virus. Tennessee's governor says retail outlets and restaurants can reopen next week at half capacity. Minnesota keeping schools closed now for the remainder of the academic year. Illinois' governor says he will extend the state's stay-at-home order through May 30th. And the Department of Homeland Security sharing its latest findings on the coronavirus in tonight's White House briefing.
3: Our most striking observation to date is the powerful effect that solar light appears to have on killing the virus, both surfaces and in the air. We've seen a similar effect with both temperature and humidity as well, where increasing the temperature and humidity or both is generally less favorable to the virus. We're also testing disinfectants readily available. We've tested bleach. We've tested isopropyl alcohol on the virus, specifically in saliva or in respiratory fluids. And and I can tell you that bleach will kill the virus in five minutes isopropyl alcohol will kill the virus in 30 seconds, and that's with no manipulation. You say that the country will be in a better place by early summer. Does that mean you're going to need to extend the social distancing guidelines until then? Well, we may, and we may
2: go beyond that. We're going to have to see where it is, and uh, I think people are going to know. You're going to know. I'm going to know. I think people are going to know just out of common sense. At some point, we won't have to do that, but until we feel it's safe, we're going to be extending.
1: That's the president there. America's biggest meat producer meantime, Tyson Foods, halting production at its beef facility in Washington state after several people tested positive for the virus and one died. This comes a day after Tyson closed big pork plants in Iowa and Indiana. Reports say there have been more than 100 COVID-19 cases at each. Tyson Foods CFO Stuart Glendenning joins us this evening. Stuart, welcome. It's great to have your voice on our program tonight.
11: Scott, thanks very much. Can you tell us what the very latest is? Well, look, uh, first, I'd just uh, love to say a huge thank you to the 100,000 plus team members who are keeping the food supply going. Uh, The latest uh, uh, news from us today, of course, was the closure of uh, one of our plants in Washington. Uh, That we've taken uh, out of an abundance of care for our employees. Uh, Taking care of our employees is job number one for us.
1: You're testing 1,400 employees for the virus. When do you expect to get the results?
11: Uh, it'll be a number of days. Uh, what is important is what we're doing for uh, our employees across the nation. Remember, we have, uh, we have more than 140 plants. Uh, we've had to close uh, three of them. Uh, most of our plants, uh, because of the precautions we're taking, uh, are COVID-free.
1: We mentioned the ones in uh, Iowa and Indiana. That was the largest pork-producing facility. Making sure people understand what we're talking about here with this facility in Washington State. Produced enough beef there in one day to feed 4 million people. We're worried about our food supply for obvious reasons. Should we be more worried about that this evening, Stuart?
11: Well, I would say, look, there's no need for panic. Uh, Interestingly enough, a plant in our network that feeds 4 million people is actually a small plant. Uh, We feed a big portion of the nation and we're very focused on making that happen every day safely for, for our employees. I will tell you that uh, if you consider the plants in the industry that have already been closed, uh, and you look at the public data uh, from uh, from our uh, USDA, you will see uh, that pork and beef processing are down somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. So that's a pretty big impact, I would say, on the supply chain of food.
1: What's the likelihood of even more closings?
11: Well, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly in our facilities, we are taking uh, a huge number of precautions uh temperature reading we spent millions of dollars on thermal scanners Uh, we have created uh, social distancing between people we put up protective barriers facial coverings uh staggered the shifts i mean we're doing an enormous number of things to try to make sure that our people stay safe and that's where we're going to focus
1: what happens if one of the tests comes back positive of the 1400 that are being taken what steps will you take at that point
11: well, any of our employees uh, who are sick, I just want you to know that uh, right from uh, from the early days, we changed our benefit structure to make sure that people who feel ill or who test positive for the virus uh, know that they're going to stay home and, and uh, they're going to be paid. Uh, if somebody tests positive, that won't be any different than and somebody testing positive in the community. Of course, uh, they're going to be well looked after and uh, we're going to be uh, paying them while they recover.
1: You mentioned the, the precautions that you're, you're taking. I'm not sure people realize you chartered a plane in Asia to bring back personal protective equipment for your workers. Is that right?
11: Yeah, thank you for that, Scott. Uh, Early on, we recognized that facial coverings were were very important. This was uh, before the CDC gave us advice uh, and uh, it was difficult to get uh, facial coverings. We we literally scoured the planet to find them. uh, And at the point where we realized that we just couldn't get them here uh, by, by ship, it would take too long. Uh, we chartered uh, a plane in order to get the face masks back to us. Understand, we, we need millions of face masks. Uh, we have more than 100,000 employees out there who require them.
10: You think your workers
1: are afraid to come, come to work now that you're testing uh, 1,400 people? I'm just wondering what you're doing if some want to stay home uh, either because they are sick or they're in fear that they may get sick.
11: Yeah. I mean, we've been really focused on uh, reassuring our employees. And that starts with the the, the precautions we've taken to keep them safe and to ensure uh, that we're not transmitting the virus uh, in our facilities. Uh, We also have given employees, the, uh, you know, hotlines so that they can report conditions that they think uh, ought to be taken care of immediately. And of course, we're acting on those. So Um, I think we're doing all of the things uh, possible to make sure that employees feel confident and comfortable coming to our our facilities.
1: You mentioned the personal protective equipment. You've also brought in 150 infrared temperature scanners. You're taking everybody's temperature as they come in?
11: Yeah, the kind of scanners we're talking about here are not just, um, you know, sort of simple scanners. These are the kinds of scanners you'll see at international airports that are capable of scanning quickly large groups of people. Uh, They cost a lot of money. And uh, they provide a great deal of, of uh, assurance around making sure that people who are sick are not coming into our facilities.
1: Well, America appreciates what you all are doing. Uh, that's for certain, keeping that food supply going. Stuart, we'll talk to you soon. Best to you and your employees. Scott, thank you very much. All right, you'll be well. That's Stuart Glenn Denning with Tyson Foods. He's the CFO. There's more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil.
2: Next tonight. Modern-day philosopher Bernard-Henri Levy on what the world will look like when the crisis ebbs. First images from around the world on day 116 of this global pandemic.
1: was a bit of a wild ride on Wall Street today. Uh, the major averages ended mixed. Uh, futures are looking negative at this hour. Let's get more on the markets, what to expect, perhaps in the month ahead. There's your look at futures uh, right now. Let's bring in Rob Seachin. He's with UBS Private Wealth Management. He also happens to be one of Forbes' top 100 financial advisors. Rob, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for uh, calling in.
8: Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having
1: me. So I mentioned this is the one-month anniversary of, of the low. You've got to give some advice now, uh, to our viewers this evening on what they should be thinking about next?
3: Mm-hmm. So I, I think that
8: we've seen the lows, but there's definitely more volatility to come. Long term, I'm still optimistic. Short term, I'm cautious. I think mean, the market's discounting a lot of good news without verification. Uh, this move's been more on hope uh, than economic fundamentals. I think the things that we're we're watching, obviously economic data and profit data, although, you know, economic data is certainly not relevant right now. Profit data has the potential to scare markets, but, but I don't think it's relevant either. It's more normalized earnings. You know, we're watching the effectiveness of fiscal and monetary policy, trying to d- ascertain how long the lockdown is going to sustain. And then we're looking for progression in diagnostics, therapeutics, and uh, and of course, you, you know, hoping for a vaccine. And so, I think we're telling uh, telling clients to be be a little more patient. We think the market's going to come to them. That said, you know, I'm in the consensus on that. And, you know, markets tend to make most of the people look silly most of the time. You
1: raise a good point, right? Because you're certainly hearing more voices now saying pullback, pullback, pullback is coming. You should buy the dip. And then what you're suggesting is if everybody thinks that a pullback is coming, you may never get it.
8: Correct. And and of course, you couple that with, uh, you know, how powerful policy has been, both fiscal and monetary, how swift it's been, Um, the Fed standing behind you, the amount of cash on the sidelines. And, you know, you might not get uh, what we're all hoping for, which is another bite at the apple.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I have Joe Terranova uh, calling in as well. Uh, Most of you know him from our uh, halftime report. Joe, thank you for calling in. I think I think People really want advice at this point. They know that we've made this V-shaped bounce in the stock market, at least, at a time where Main Street certainly has not and won't uh, for an awfully long time. They want to know how long this could last and perhaps even what they should do with their money right now, if anything, or just wait.
3: I appreciate that, Scott. Thank you for having me. I, I listened intently to what Rob said, and I agree with a lot of what he would say. Um, I would urge investors and your viewers to think about on a pullback where exactly do they want to deploy capital. And obviously it's in an information technology, but I also think you have to give strong consideration to health care. Healthcare is going to be part of the solution from COVID nineteen and the equity franchises will respond accordingly. So I would include healthcare into the equation uh for looking on opportunities on dips. Conversely, I heard Rob talking about the upside. Keep in mind that with an S&P 500 above 2800 at that point, the market is competing with opportunities that can be found in the credit markets. And what I'm seeing in the last 10 days is credit investors who have a dollar to invest prefer to go and accept some of the high-yield and investment-grade offerings – Versus going in and purchasing equities above twenty eight
1: hundred. Tell you, it's interesting you say that. I mean, Lee Cooperman was talking about credit being more attractive than than stocks today, uh, as as well. You know, Rob, you can't have. I discussed this with with Mike Santoli earlier because we've come you know so far. I'm just wondering what you think about, you know, the people who rely on dividends, for example. Are, are we going to be in an environment where? We have to watch every stock we buy. We need to take a close look at their dividend and ask ourselves a question: whether we think that they're going to be cut in the months ahead, and factor that into the investment decisions that we're making.
8: Yes, I mean I think that's one of the things that you need to look at. We we are still buying dividend equities, dividend growth equities, companies that we have a high degree of conviction that that's that's not going to happen. Obviously, if anybody takes money from the government. You know they're they're certainly not going to be raising their dividends. I would agree with Joe. Uh, you know we are playing in what I would call the new defensive, um, communication services, healthcare, and although it's not 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 overweight for the firm, technology as well. And then we're trying to get some optionality in some of the cyclicals, but in a much smaller, smaller way. And we're looking to buy that that on the dip. Um, So that's kind of how we're thinking about it. And then I would also agree with uh, I would also agree with Joe that one of our favorite areas is high yield. I mean, the high yield markets are are certainly not as expensive as the equity markets right now.
1: I don't like you guys agreeing that much. We've got to do something about that the next time on the (laughs) the Afternoon report. Uh, Joe, what about this idea that there's too much of a concentration in these big glamour names in technology, the Amazons and the Apples and some of the other ones? (laughs)
3: <laughs> there is, and, and I think that's a great observation. And I think you're seeing a little bit of that um, this morning. The market, when it was up five ho- uh, four hundred, rather, I was watching Amazon intently in the Fang names, and they seemed exhausted, Scott. They kind of ran out of steam, and I think that's one of the contributing factors why uh, we fell back at the end of the day. Yes, you had the negative news surrounding Gilead, but past experiences. In prior weeks, even on negative news, it has been the support that's been contributed from Amazon and from Apple and Microsoft that kind of supported the market. So I was a little discouraged today by the exhaustion that uh, presented itself from those mega-cap technology names.
1: Yeah, we'll see where they go. In the days ahead, gentlemen, thank you so much. That's Rob Seachin and Joe Chernova joining us this evening. It is day 116 of the crisis. Let's bring you up to date with the headlines now. The House of Representatives passing the nearly $500 billion virus relief bill and sending it to the president's desk for his signature. Another 4.4 million Americans filed for unemployment last week, making it more than 26 million in the last five weeks. And stocks ended the day flat after negative news on Gilead's virus fighter. Let's take you to the board, show you where futures go. Again, we are one month away from those lows, the March 23rd, and here we find ourselves after what was a wild swing on Wall Street today, in part because of that Gilead news. Futures do look like they would open to the downside. It is early. We always say this trading is light, and of course, volume is thin. The S&P would open lower by 18, the Dow would open lower triple digits by 120, the NASDAQ by 73. You can go to CNBC.com all evening long for up-to-the-minute information on the markets and this virus. We are back at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange. We'll see you, of course, on the halftime tomorrow at noon. And at 7 p.m. for Markets in Turmoil, The Path Forward, your business with Damon John. For all of us here at CNBC, please be well. I'm Scott Wapner. Shark Tank is next.